0: I really love our class today because one of the the, the joys for me as a teacher is, let, let, me, let me take a poll. How many of you have been in Sunday school at least 10 years? Raise your hand. Wow. 20 years. 25. 30. 35. Give me 40. I'm going to give 40 Okay, we've got people raising their hand over 40 years of Sunday school. And I know that. My grandmother normally attends. She's been in Sunday school for, she's 90. She's been in Sunday school for probably at least 80 years. And one of the things I have a great deal of joy doing is I try to find something in every lesson every week that you have not heard before. If I can find something Billy Dumas has not heard in her 20 years of going to Sunday school, because she's 25, 72 years, then I have, have uh, uh, honored her time in being here. I never want to just regurgitate. Not that there's anything wrong with us saying the things we need to hear over and over. That's good. But I really want... So I think I've got something in this class that out of say 350 people in here, maybe, uh, maybe 90% or more don't know that it's one of these gorgeous nuggets in Scripture that the more we study and the more time we spend, we get to discover. And I love it. In preparation for it, I bought all of our children a new Bible because I wanted them once more to be aware of the excitement at studying this word that has untold riches to write in, to study, and to know no matter how old or how young they are, there's something there for them. It's the word of God. So as we start, let me tell you about this fella. I want to tell you about Publius Ovidius Nasso. He lived from 43 B.C. till 17. A.D. Means he died about 30 years before Paul in this mission trip that we're studying. I don't know if anybody's heard his name like that. Because in English we call him by his nickname, Ovid. Ovid wrote a book that you can buy entitled The Metamorphosis. And this is a book that takes all of the great myths, as in mythology, all of the great myths of his day. And he puts them together into one long-running, continuous narrative. So all of those mythological stories that were were talked about and and were taught and were believed in his day, Ovid put together into this one long-running narrative. And I've pulled out of book 8 a portion I want to tell you about before we start studying Paul. The main God in the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods or collection of gods, the main one was in in Greek mythology, he carried the name Zeus. In Roman theology, he carried the name Jupiter or Iova um, by Jove. You've heard that expression by Jove. J-O-V-E is short for the Latin of Jupiter. Okay? And it's an oath that goes back to Roman times when they would take the oath by Jupiter. Okay? But the the Greek name for that god was Zeus. And he was the king of all of the gods. He was the big guy. Okay? Okay? Now, he had a bunch of sons by a bunch of different people as well as a bunch of different goddesses. One of his sons was a fellow named Hermes. Hermes's Latin name, if you were a Roman, they, the Romans called him Mercury. But to the Greek, he was Hermes. And Dale Hearn thought it was Hermes like the tie. But it's not. It's just Hermes. You were right, Dale. Three people. He said, if you make that joke, three people will get it. Or at least think it funny enough to laugh. I was going for five. Thought I could double him up. Um, Hermes was well known as the messenger god. He was the one who had the winged helmet, who had the winged feet, who had the scepter that had wings on it and snakes on it. Hermes was the messenger god who would do all the talking for the gods. Not only would he do the talking for the gods, but if you died, he was the one who took your soul down to Hades. He was kind of like uh uh the the guy, okay? Now, you got those two? Let me tell you what what Ovid told us was a myth about these fellows or a story about these two gods. Ovid says that there came a time where these two gods went to an area called Phrygia. And they went to Phrygia disguised as humans, mortals. Ovid says that uh, uh, Hermes took off his winged helmet and his winged shoes and put aside his scepter and looked like a human. And Zeus put on human flesh and tried to look like a mere mortal. And these two fellows go to Phrygia and they start looking for a house to go in and eat and a thousand homes denied them entrance. They went to a thousand different homes in Phrygia, and all of the homes barred the door and wouldn't let these two gods in disguise in. Finally, they come to a home of an elderly poor couple, and this elderly poor couple brings them in, and proceeds to take the meager food and drink that they have and supply it to the gods in disguise. Now, the elderly couple do not know these are gods. They just are being hospitable. So they do think something's up because as they keep pouring the wine out of the jug, it never seems to go down in volume. The gods finally as the couple are about to kill their goose to feed the gods, the gods finally say, Time out. We need to tell you who we are. We're the gods Zeus and Hermes in disguise. Now come with us. The elderly couple go, and and they go out uh, to a a mountain area, a hill, so that the the four of them can look back on the, the Phrygian valley. And Zeus says, Hermes says, the messenger, says, okay, y'all were good to us. We're going to take care of you now. We're about to wipe out everybody and you get to watch. But we're not going to wipe you out since you were hospitable. Instead, we're going to turn your home into a temple for Zeus. And we're going to grant you any wish you want. The elderly couple said, oh, wow, that's incredible. And they actually asked for two wishes and got them both. The first wish was that they would become priests of Zeus. And so Zeus says, you bet, Zeus turns their old shack into this incredible temple to him with marble floors and marble columns. And then Zeus makes them both priests says, uh, you said two things. What was the other thing you wanted? They said, we don't want to grow old and die separately. We love each other. We'd like to die together. And so these two get to be priests for Zeus until they finally reach an age where they're both about to die and they look gazingly at each other. And instead of dying, Zeus reaches down and turns them into two trees that are entwined together. And Ovid says... In 7 AD, when he's writing this, finishing his metamorphosis, Ovid says that you can go over to Phrygia today and still see those two trees. Because everybody still talks about it. And in fact, the priests of Zeus go regularly and they lay garland out at those trees as a sacrifice to not only Zeus, but to the gods, I mean, to the priests that started their vocation, if you will. Interesting story, isn't it? Story well known in Phrygia. Made Ovid's book, even though Ovid's writing in Rome. Now, with that, let's go back to Paul. We'll put that in in a little bit, so hang on to it. We've been finishing Paul's first missionary journey last week and this week. This is part three and by God's grace hopefully we'll finish it before we're as we're done today. And where have we been so far? Well the missionary journey started in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas went to Salamis and went to Paphos on the island of Cyprus and we studied that in lesson one. Lesson two we got them up to Pisidian Antioch where they were giving the synagogue service and last week that we had class which was Palm Sunday, I guess, the week before Easter. We finished with Paul and Barnabas at the synagogue. And the people were abuzz over the message that Paul had for them. And the people said, would you please come back next Sabbath and talk to us about it again? And Paul said, certainly. And over the week, the excitement really built. Everyone was talking about it. The buzz was there. And everyone was getting ready for it. And when the fateful Sabbath came, the doors were busted open. The crowd was overwhelming. Not just the Jews. Not just the, uh, let's see, what's the Jewish equivalent of people who come to church only on Easter Sunday and Christmas? Uh, not just the Passover Sabbath only. Um, I'm talking, yeah, yeah, the the not just the Day of Atonement Jews. This wasn't just Yom Kippur only. This was actual Jews and Greeks busting down the doors because everyone wanted to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. Well, Paul and Barnabas went in there, and some of the Jews started getting a bit jealous. What are they doing here? How, did, how come they attract this kind of crowd? I don't have my seat. I don't, I don't have my parking place. I show up every Saturday for the last 32 years, and these people come waltzing in just because these newbies are in town, and the jealousy builds. And these people think, eh, Paul's not so hot a rabbi anyway. And so as Paul stands up to speak... Some of the old guard Jews get very upset, and they start reviling him and contradicting him. The word for contradict means simply that to dispute it. But the word revile means more. It means to. Uh, it's the same word as blaspheme. It means to uh, 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 even curse. It means to to really cut down and be harsh. And Paul is up there speaking the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes as a fulfillment to the Jewish law and the Jewish prophecy. Jesus is the crown on top of the Jewish faith. Jesus is what Judaism has, has existed for and pointed to. He is the, the, the full answer to, to all that there was in the Jewish prophets and law. If anybody should understand and accept Jesus Messiah, it would be those Jews. But these were some of the very Jews that were trashing Paul and his message. So, Paul says, very bluntly, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you're turning and you thrust it aside... Since you judge, this is kind of irony, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Okay, now this is being said in a synagogue. Paul is just taking the synagogue and basically saying, this is no longer your house. This, we're, we're, from here on out, man, we're talking to the Gentiles. We're taking this message to those that you would not typically even want to associate with. Now, if we had an attitude meter of what happened after that, we'd see two different reactions, Luke says, as Luke writes the book of Acts. He says the Gentiles were pretty pumped about this. Whoa, we get it? See, the Gentiles had been going to the synagogue, a lot of them, God-fearers, and had been told, you can enjoy this much of the service, but that's all because you're not part of the chosen people. Oh, don't get me wrong, you can become a Jew if you care to, men, if you want to line up for circumcision. But absent your willingness to become a Jew, you are, even though you're welcome to watch, an outsider. And Paul is saying, no. Paul says, you're not an outsider. This is now yours. We're coming to you. So the Gentiles are rejoicing. Now, I said that there's two parts to this. As happy as the Gentiles are, the Jews are furious. How dare he? How dare he in our synagogue say that the answer to our religion is the Gentiles' possession? How dare he say that now we're the outsiders? Because we're contradicting him. And how dare he do this in our home, in our synagogue? And so the Jewish leaders go to the leaders within society, some of the power brokers of Pisidian Antioch, and they get them all riled up together, and they basically prepare to stone or appropriately uh, 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 persecute Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas hear about it. And Paul and Barnabas decide that they're going to leave and they're just going to shake the dust off of their feet. Thank you. I worked on that slide. <laughs> Given time, I could have done a little more, but yeah, you know, all I had. Um, you want to see it again? <laughs> shake the dust off their feet. Okay. So Paul, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was a chore. Um... Paul and Barnabas leave. They leave the city, and they go from Pisidian Antioch to a town called Iconium. The distance, roughly 90 miles. Now, through the measurements of Dale Hearn, I put this into perspective. If when this service is over, we start walking from Champion Forest Baptist Church, it's roughly the equivalent of walking to Texas A&M. Though why anyone would want to do that is beyond me. But I guess it's closer than Texas Tech. Um, Dale says that's just under 90 miles. You'd have to walk north of it, to the north part of Bryan College Station. That's how far they go. They go to Iconium, and while they're there... They go to the synagogue and they again start teaching about Jesus. And the reception is very good until the Jews from and Antioch hear about it. And they come down and they get them in trouble again. Because these are outlaws to those folks. And they're going to get them out of the region before they do anything else. They are furious. So Paul and Barnabas leave. And Paul and Barnabas then go just about 18 miles south-southwest or south to this town called Lystra. Lystra. When Paul and Barnabas go into Lystra, at some point in time as they're teaching, a fella is there who's been lame since birth. Never been able to stand. And this man's listening, and Paul sees this man listening to Paul's message. And Paul realizes, as he watches this man as he's talking, that this man has faith. That this man has enough faith in 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 what's being said to be plugged in. And so Paul looks at him and says, "Stand up on your feet." And the fella does. In the presence of all of these people this is not a big city of Houston. This is a small village where everyone knew everyone and everyone had known for decades this man had never stood up and this man's standing up this is not some service where you wonder as the people are being healed if the people were ever sick or were they plants or were they, no this is a Clear miracle. Very clear. The people have an interesting reaction. Let me tell you about their reaction. This is an area of Gauls, so it's called Galatia, but this is a very special area of Galatia. Do you know what area this is? This is an area called Phrygia, Phrygia we know about in this class because we've discussed Ovid. And Ovid told us at this time in Phrygia there was a story that went around that said Zeus and Hermes disguised themselves as mortals and said, let's go to Phrygia. And tried to get into a number of homes and everyone refused them hospitality except this elderly couple. So everyone got wiped out except the elderly couple. And the elderly couple became the priests. And their house became a temple of Zeus and that's the temple. And that couple are the couple who became those entwined trees where we place garland in honor of Zeus and Hermes. And the people say, wow, this has got to be Zeus and Hermes. They've done it again. They've come back. Let us not make the mistake our forefathers made. We all want in on the marble palace. So the people come and they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They call Barnabas Zeus. He was the strong, silent type. They call Paul Hermes because he's the talker. He's the messenger. Even the priests of the temple of Zeus come and try to kill an oxen to sacrifice. They're bringing the garlands that they set on the trees and they're laying the garlands down before Paul. I don't know that Paul had a clue about this myth. I strongly suspect he did not. I'm not even sure Luke knew about it when he wrote Acts. But it was there. We know about it independently from the Bible. We know about it reading Ovid. Here's the way Luke records it. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycaonian, which is their local tongue... The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then Luke goes on to say that the priests, they offered sacrifices or tried to and they brought garlands, which was specifically laid out in Ovid as what they did in honor of Zeus and Hermes. It's one of these wonderful ways that Secular history confirms a biblical account and makes even more sense of it for us as we understand it. And so as the people come before Paul and Barnabas and start offering sacrifices and saying all of this, the response of Paul and Barnabas is to tear their clothes off, not in an obscene way, but to say, look, 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 this is me, I'm flesh, I'm a human, don't think I'm a god. Of course, that doesn't deter the people. Why? Because the people's story was that the gods dressed up as humans. And that's why I don't think Paul knew the story. Because he was trying to explain it in a way that would make sense to you and me. I'm not a god. Nothing up my sleeve, you know? But it doesn't register to the people. It doesn't register to the people until the bounty hunters... From Antioch, the bounty hunters from uh, uh, Iconium make their way to Lystra. They say, time out. These charlatans have been causing trouble for the last 108 miles. They're not gods. They're probably trying to pilfer something from you. They're probably trying to make their way into your graces. Basically, you've probably really ticked off Zeus and Hermes. And those who do not believe in Jesus turn on Paul and Barnabas. And that's when the persecution starts. And so Paul and Barnabas leave. And they go from Lystra to this town called Derbe. We're not told much about Derby. Um, we're told that Paul and Barnabas went there and they delivered the message. And that there were some converts. Now, we're going to find out later. In Lystra or Derby, we're not sure which. Most scholars assign it to Lystra, but I don't know that they can for any legitimate reason. One of the converts was a boy named Timothy. And so Timothy's going to play into this story again. Paul is not through with this area of Phrygia and Galatia. By the way, Luke will even call it Phrygia in Acts 16 when he talks about it again. Because that's the area that it was. Now, here they are. They've basically done their mission thing. And they're ready to go home. They being Paul and Barnabas. I'm looking at this map and I'm thinking got to get back to Antioch from Derby. Well, I've done enough research to tell you that there is a road that runs from Derby to Antioch at the time. There was a road at the time that not only did it, but went through Tarsus, Paul's hometown. We're from Lubbock. Becky and I find any excuse we can to go through Lubbock. It's a chance to eat at Taco Villa. Someone else has been to Lubbock. You've eaten at Taco Villa. You've had their green sauce. You find a reason to go back. Not to mention the fact that it's our home where we grew up. That we've got a lot of friends there. But we always find an excuse to go back through home. Isn't that typical? So I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, Paul, man, I'd want to go to Tarsus. Might as well hit it on the way home. It's a shorter route. It's certainly safer than going back up through this territory where they've put bounty hunters on your tail. But Paul and Barnabas decide not to go back the short way through Paul's home. Instead, they decide to take the long way. And they go back through Lystra. They go back through Iconium. They go back through Pisidian Antioch. They go back and finally preach in Perga, and then they take a boat and they sail home. Why? Well, there's an interesting balance at play in Scripture here. And I want us to notice the balance. There's a balance that Luke's always putting out between God's work and man's work. Paul's. You know, God's the one who called Paul. And Barnabas to be missionaries. But Luke makes it clear that it was the church that sent them. Paul, God calls, but the church sends. God's spirit's involved in the work, but so are Paul and Barnabas. God gives the words, God performs the miracles, but he does them through Paul and Barnabas. And there's a balance there. And we can focus in and see some interesting scriptures the, the way Luke writes it, that, that give us more. When Luke's talking about the people in and Antioch, he says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as God appointed to eternal life believed. That's God. God is at work. Some folks find in here, as uh, Barrett calls it, Professor Barrett said this is as the, the most unequivocal statement of predestination in the Bible. And I'm not sure that's a fair answer. Because there's another side to that coin. And we'll discuss that when we talk about predestination and Paul's views on it. And Paul's teachings on it. When we reach that point in this class. But for now, look at that verse. And yet, as strong as that verse is. Along with it, it says Paul returned to these churches he'd established to encourage the disciples to continue in the faith. Paul's at work. Paul wants them to continue. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe, but Paul says we're going back and not only urging and encouraging them to continue in the faith, but we're appointing elders for the churches. Our work is not done simply by preaching the message of Christ. And that balance is there. So Paul makes it through, and he goes back through those other churches, and he gets back to Antioch, and he tells everyone, and Barnabas tells everyone, and all the people are rejoicing, and life is great. And the church is so excited that they heard the call of God, they honored it, that God kept Paul and Barnabas safe through very difficult travels, took them through some incredible adventures, performed great miracles, and established brand new churches of believers, that Paul and Barnabas entrusted to the care of the Lord, Luke says. Even though Paul's going to write him a letter in the next year that we call Galatians. Entrusting them to the care of the Lord doesn't mean Paul doesn't do his part. Now, while Paul's in Antioch with Barnabas, something happens. Some issues arise. There are some Judaizers who come up. ...from Judea and go to the Antioch church and say, listen, this is all fine and good that you're Christians. But as these Greeks become Christians, they need to first be Jews. So the men before the men can really be real Christians have to first be circumcised. We're not going to have a bunch of Greek Christians. We can have Greeks who've converted to Judaism who are Christians... And I'm sure these folks had wonderful arguments. I'm sure that they said, because Christianity is the fulfillment of the Jewish law, because Christianity is the answer of Jewish prophecy, it only makes sense that for someone to be a Christian, they've made the journey through Judaism. But Paul doesn't like it, and Paul has a... Uh, quite a discussion over it, as does some of the other leaders in Antioch. So the leaders in Antioch decide that they're going to send Paul down to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, set this down before the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem and see what happens. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 15, we read about this confrontation. And there's a debate that goes on and on and on and on and on until finally Peter stands up and says, Listen, I'm Peter remember what God did and said he would do through me. I preached that Pentecost sermon. I was involved at the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile to be converted. The first Greek to be converted. And God never made any distinction between that uncircumcised Greek who becomes converted, Gentile, and us. Gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave it to us. They're saved by the grace of God, just like we are. They're saved by faith in Jesus, just as we are. And the elders and the other apostles say, yeah, I think you're right. Okay, let's hear from Paul. And Paul proceeds to give him all of the details of his trip. And God, the great economist we see that God not only performed a miracle for that lame man so that that lame man's faith could be confirmed and he would have the life, but God performed those miracles so Paul could go back and tell the Jerusalem church about how God had worked in the life of an uncircumcised Greek. And the people hear it with wonder at what God's done. So the decision is made by the elders and the apostle to write a letter back for the Antioch church. And here's what the letter says. The letter says, we've listened to all of this. You don't have to become Jews, but there are four things that we're going to require of you. Please, these four things. Number one, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Now you may, if you're the sharp biblical student, you may be saying, wait a minute. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 8 that there's not a problem with food sacrificed to idols. Were the apostles wrong? Or was Paul wrong? Neither. This letter that's being written is not being written to say, hey, this is what you've got to do to be Christians. It's being written to say there is a, a, an issue that's tearing at the fabric of the church right now in Antioch. And these are the four things we want you all to do right now to maintain your fellowship. And that's why Paul in Corinthians will say, look, idols are nothing. There's not such a thing. So you're not really eating food sacrificed to an idol. But if it offends a a weaker brother who doesn't understand it, I just would rather not eat anything at all. Because I'm after the harmony of the church. This is a letter being written not to deal with issues of salvation, but to deal with harmony in the church. So don't eat food sacrificed to idols. No blood. Don't drink blood. No, no strangled animals. Let's just don't have fusses over whether the meat's kosher or not. And then an easy gimme that's going to apply, period. No sexual immorality. That's not appropriate. It's not appropriate in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And so this is the letter, and Paul's thankful, and Paul takes it back, and the Antioch church gets it, and the Antioch church is excited to have it. Now, next week. If you've got your books next week and you haven't lost them and they get them off the shelf, dust them off, read pages 173 to 187, The Gentile Problem, because we're going to discuss Paul's letter to the Galatians next week. And we're going to spend uh, just one day on it, but uh, in one day we're going to discuss that letter that he wrote because it fits in with these issues Paul's probably gotten his letter. If not, he'll shortly get that letter from the Jerusalem conference. We're not sure if he wrote the Galatians before or after. But we'll better understand the letter of Galatia with Galatians within the flow of what's happened here because this is where he wrote it. Points for home. I would ask you to think for a moment about the long and majestic reach of God. I'm... Amazed that God could take um, a myth about fictitious gods Zeus and Hermes and figure out how it helps move some people into faith in Jesus Christ. I'm amazed at, at how Scripture is written in, in ways where uh, it's not just as simple as ABC. It's, it's, it, there are challenges there to understand. But there are depths and riches of Scripture that the more we learn uh, unfold before us. And I'm amazed at the majestic reach of God in your life. That he takes all of the things that have happened to you and to me. And says, you're mine, and I want the best for you, and I've got it for you, and here it is. And from right now, regardless of what's gone on before, from right now, you have before you a life, a blessing, God's blessing, there for the taking. Peter said, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Unless you are Jewish, we're part of the they in that sentence. And it's a wonderful salvation that I thank God for. And urge you to never, ever, ever refuse. Second point. The real Christian goal is service. It's how we live. It's not theology. Don't get me wrong. I love theology. I read it, I study it, I talk it, I think it. We do in this class and we will. But the goal is not so we can be theologically literate or bright. The goal is for our lives to be lived in service to God. Here's the way Pastor Fleming said it this morning. Good religion does not equal a great life. Remember that point he did this morning? I had to leave church early so I could put it in here. I don't know what he said after that. No, I'm just joking. I got it in. I saved the wonderful sermon. But he's right. It's the same thing. Jesus did not say, if any man come after me, let him learn really good theology. Now that would have rhymed in English. But the way he said it was, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What changes our lives? Oh, theology can change it. As you understand the depths and the riches of God, it affects who you are and it affects how you behave. And theology is very important. And poor theology leads to poor decisions and poor life choices. But the goal is never the theology. The theology is a tool to help us better understand the Lord and his purposes and his call on our life. So that we live in the ways that he'd have us live. And the goal behind that is not just so we ratchet up a bunch of, ch- a bunch of chits on the balance sheet. The point of that is to be in his will. So that our lives are what he wants them to be. And his plan is unfolded on earth. Finally. Pray for the nameless missionaries. We have in the past and we will continue to put a missionary up for us to pray about in each class that we're dealing with Paul's mission work. But I was touched this week by the recognition that there are a lot of people that I cannot put on this. Who are missionaries right now from our church and other places of God's people that are serving in areas where if I list them, their lives could be in danger. We might not notice it. We leave here and go over to mom's for lunch. Uh, Not all of us. She didn't cook that much. (laughs) Although she could have. Um, But we leave here and we go on our merry way while there are people whose lives are on the line because they have answered God's call for them in their life to minister and teach in places that endanger uh, their earthly existence. So let's keep them in prayer this week. And by the grace of God, I hope to see you back next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do pray right now in the name of Jesus for your protection, your wisdom, your Holy Spirit to work to bring all of those appointed to believe. To take care of the missionaries that are out there. We especially focus our prayer right now, Lord, and ask in your will and by your grace that those missionaries serving in places where their lives are in danger would be built up, would be encouraged, would be protected, and would finish the work that you've set out for them. We thank you that you work through so many different people to bring your purpose to conclusion in this world. And Lord, we offer ourselves to you in your service. Help us to get out of our own bubbles and live in your vision. Do the things you call us to do as a holy and righteous people that belong to you. We are your children. You are not just our Father, though you are our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.